A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Hey, John Semley. Hello. Hello again. Still writing for the Star, still writing for the Globe? I am, yes. That's uh, why I'm here. And the Kids in the Hall book, when's that coming out? October 2016, so save the date, but 15 months away. Welcome back to Shortcuts. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Brian A. Clark, John McGoldrick, Jen Foster, John Gray, Mark Cluett, Fazal Khan, Jay Crichton, Jim Dempsey, and Aidan Nullman. Aiden, why did you decide to be awesome? There's no better ASMR trigger for me than listening to you and your guests discuss Canadian media, maybe over a glass of Merlot. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks.com, online invoicing made easy. John, you're a freelancer. I am. What do you uh, What do you use for your for your billing? Uh, I was using Microsoft Word. Um, that little uh, clippy to paper clip was always like, it looks like you were trying to send an invoice. Uh, and I thought that was fine, but I mean, you always mention this. It is a pain in the neck at the end of the year when you're opening up all these invoices, uh, putting them into an Excel sheet. I got killed on income taxes here because I did not put near enough away for my HST and CCP payments. John. There's got to be a better way. Upgrade, man. Upgrade from Clippy, the paperclip. FreshBooks is online invoicing made easy. I liked the visualizations. I got to tell you, this is like one of those weird things where you get a little bit obsessive about like which client pays me faster than anyone else. You know, which client do I get it's more? These are the people that owe you the least money in my experience. <laughs> 
cloud accounting by FreshBooks. Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. You can try it out for free. When you do sign up, tell them who sent you. FreshBooks has made my life easier. It saves me time every month. Check it out. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Good evening. Surviving witnesses to the murder of nine people inside a quiet Wednesday night Bible study in Charleston, South Carolina this week told authorities the act was driven by racist hatred. Witnesses told officials that Roof said he was at the church to shoot black people. He said, um, you rape our women and you take in over our country and you have to go. Driven by racist hatred, said he was there to shoot black people because they rape his women and they have to go. Toronto Star headline read, motive for South Carolina massacre still unclear. Why did he do it, John? I mean, he left people alive so that they could clarify it to the media. There's nothing unclear about it. I suppose that with something like this, the media or certain quarters of the media don't perceive racism or hatred of black people or bigotry as enough of a motive. I don't want to beat up on them unduly because that headline was very quickly flagged by many people on Twitter and very quickly changed. I reached out to Michelle Shepard and said, what can you tell me about this? And of course, she doesn't write her own headlines. She said, look, it was a busy day. My copy editor uh, wrote that. You know, sometimes the writer will suggest a headline to the copy editor. She didn't. Shepard said, you got to change it. And they changed it. And, and uh, they changed it too. Wanted to start a race war? Like, yeah. The exact opposite. The opposite. Like going from we have no idea to insanely sort of hyperbolic. I mean, not insanely hyperbolic because that is what he was saying. Well, just the answer to the question. It's like, this is unclear. Well, actually, it's, it's crystal clear. Like the, the motive very clear. You know? right, motive right. unclear? No, motive very clear. Why I think that this is an interesting thing to focus on is that headlines 
are kind of a window into the id of a, of a newspaper because you get these layers of editorial where the reporter knows the most about the topic. The copy editor who writes the headline knows less, you know, and, and is trying to like kind of crystallize or summarize this. And they're writing it for a perceived reader who knows the least. Right. So the question that goes through like your head when you're writing a headline is like, what can we pluck out of this? How are people going to best understand this? And so you always fall back on tropes. And, and it's what's interesting here. I don't think it's about some person being racist or the double standard of how you would cover this as, as we've been talking since this awful massacre occurred about it was this an act of terrorism and what would happen if this was a brown person or a, if it's a black person, the trope is, oh, thug, if it's a brown person, terrorist, and if it's a white person, lone wolf, crazy. Right. Well, you want to psychoanalyze them, which is something that white shooters always get the benefit of. Yeah. So you want to go back to like, was there some structuring trauma? Like you're laying them down on a chaise lounge. Like, was he uh, beat up in school as a kid? Did his dad leave as a kid? You go through all this sort of stock Freudian yeah. psychoanalysis with any lone wolf he, killer. Because I think the, the conception is like, well, this person, like, I don't get it. He looks so much like all these people that I know and like. So I don't think so. When I look at that guy, I don't know. No, not that dude. But, you know, like, and, and, and there he is, like, almost screaming in your ear, like, I did it because I hate black people. Yeah, he's wearing, like, a Rhodesian flag and, like, an apartheid South Africa flag. Yeah. And did it at a, at, a, at a historical church of, of major import. Like, this was a political act. It couldn't have been clearer. And yet our first reaction is, like— well, you know, we're going to have to take a long time. Very murky, unclear. It's what, like what the, was... it reminds me of the Louis C.K. joke where the daughter keeps saying, why, 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 all the way down to the bottom, why anything, you know? Yeah. Where with, with cases like this, we always want to know the why and the why beneath the why. But with other people, you rarely have such benefit. It's like, oh, they were radicalized on the internet and decided to blow up a bus or something. Now, over on Commons, Andre said, this is terrorism. Let's just call it what it is. Right. To me, it's not. It's terrorism if Islamic fascist violence is terrorism. Uh, and that is, you know, and the colloquial, like, you know, we kind of know terrorism when we see it because it's a brown person. Like, that's what the media has become. Like, that's what a terrorist thing is. And this is something different. If you're going to say that a politically motivated act of mass murder that, you know, is there uh, with, you know, a very specific political end in mind, trying to trigger a race war, make people afraid. I suppose if anything is terrorism, this is. But I'm kind of moving to the point of view that the phrase has absolutely lost meaning. And it's just not given what we do, we have to respect words and, and the specificity of words. And I don't know that that's a helpful term anymore for any of these things. I agree with that 100 percent. I mean, this is something that I've thought a lot about uh, and if not written about or spoken about for the star, then certainly tweeted a lot about, I feel. But we had this thing and it was very useful for a while to sort of define what we mean by terrorism. When the Ottawa shooting happened, Glenn Greenwald had the whole thing. Well, technically, these aren't acts of terrorism. These are acts of open war against a nation and ideology that Canada's at open war with. So terrorism is not useful in that sense, or it's only useful in sort of exacerbating this idea that terrorism is Islamic violence against non-Islamic people. But people trying to use this phrase domestic terrorism as a corrective to that makes it seem just as meaningless to me where everything is becoming terrorism now. Uh, and it's one of those things where if everything is terrorism, then nothing is terrorism. And the danger with that is if the effort becomes, well, let's define all of these things of terror as terrorism because if the Islamic version applies, then certainly the white supremacist version applies. You know, our purpose as journalists is to be descriptive and to like have words that actually mean something and help people discern what's going on as opposed to the purpose of language from the point of view of government, which is in defining things as terrorism, we've created this whole category of extrajudicial process right. that if we can call it terrorism, 
we can suspend privacy rights. We can suspend freedom of speech. We can suspend all the due process. We can lock people up, send them off to countries. There's all sorts of things you can do if you can slap that on it. So I don't think that necessarily the motivation should be to define more things as terrorism. Right, exactly. And I mean, it is, you know, arguably a different thing. I mean, we're still talking about violent ideologies, but when you can connect something directly to the IS or ISIL or whatever uh, it's being called this week, and when you're connecting something to a loose sort of cadre of vague and from reading the Dylan Roof Manifesto, very cliched white supremacist ideas that don't necessarily have the same level of gravity. It's not like there's discrete cells all over the continent or something like that. I feel like it dilutes it further into meaningless to say that this is a terrorist act because people were terrified and it was designed to inflict fear when the political motivation is extremely vague. Lawyers for former Vanock boss John Furlong presenting opening arguments today in the defamation trial brought against him by journalist Laura Robinson. Now, John, Furlong's lawyers are accusing Robinson of essentially mounting a smear campaign. Furlong said that it was an unrelenting attack and uh, the abuse allegations in Robinson's Georgia Strait article were absolutely not true ever. Furlong says, but they continued with Robinson calling and writing Olympic and city officials, the Whitecaps, various corporate boards. Furlong says it was a financial disaster. He and his family were subject to continued abuse. His wife, Deborah, said that they had to get away, so they went to Ireland. But Deborah wasn't familiar with driving on the other side of the road, and she died in a car crash. Furlong says that it was the most broken I'd ever felt. Furlong says that the abuse allegations cost him his wife, and he spoke briefly outside of court. A very you know, difficult day here, and, uh, but I am pleased I've had the opportunity to you know, speak to the court and, and give my account of everything that's taken place. And I, I, as I was sitting there, I was just wishing that you know, Deborah would have been here to see this and hear it through and feel, you know, I hope she feels some pride uh, in, in what's happening and that we're finally getting an opportunity to say what we've wanted to say for a very long time. Okay, where to begin? Um, I mean, this is awful. It's awful that his wife died. So here, he hopes she's witnessing this from somewhere proudly as he gets his opportunity to to tell his side of the story. John, he's on trial. Yes, it feels a bit like he is. And again, it's sad that his wife died driving on the wrong side of the road. But it feels a bit like he is exploiting it um, either for cloying sympathetic reasons or to bludgeon back Laura Robinson and effectively say – you are indirectly responsible for my wife being killed in a car accident. I don't even think we need to mitigate the language. He wasn't even saying you're indirectly responsible. He said that this story cost me my wife. He, he blames Laura Robinson right. for his wife's death circumstantially She in might Ireland. as well have been the other driver. Yeah. And it was an effective thing to say if it was in fact ta- a tactic and that, that that was what the headline was, was about this cost me my wife. And then we have him taking control of the media narrative. So that was the, a global story that might as well have been about John Furlong finally gets his opportunity to tell his side of the story. John Furlong dropped his suit against the Georgia Strait for libel and defamation. He, he dropped his case against Laura Robinson. He has no choice. Right. But to be there telling his side of the story. And he, in fact, is on trial. Anything, everything you heard there in that global news report would seem to indicate that uh, John Furlong is the one who uh, was instigating this. That the is plaintiff, not the case. As yeah. opposed to the defendant. 
So John Furling has to prove that Laura Robinson is like a lousy journalist because that's the one of the statements was that she lacked she, she you know she's an did an atrocious job she she didn't do her proper diligence. I don't know how you say that somebody lacked their diligence and got a story wrong when they repeatedly came to you for comment and you wouldn't give them an interview and has like what eight sworn affidavits on the other side. Well, and that's that's the other thing is that in terms of diligence, you know, she went above and beyond anything that any investigative reporter I know who's done a similar story has done in getting in an alt weekly. In an alt-weekly, eight sworn affidavits. She actually went way beyond that. There are over 40 witnesses in this case, but eight of them signed sworn affidavits. Um, But that doesn't help his case in proving that she didn't do her diligence. So what can he present to the court to prove that she's a lousy journalist? Well, one of the things he presented was the fact that this originally was supposed to be published by the Toronto Star as well as the Georgia Strait. And the, the, the Toronto Star chickened out. The star uh, got to the point of publishing and then said, and there's an email that she received. Well, it's not that we don't think it isn't true. We, we believe the story is true, but there's squeamishness on high. Okay. So the editors lost their nerve and didn't want to go to press with this. And that's bad enough. But then that gets turned on her in court as somehow evidence of her lousy journalism. Like, why is there editorial cowardice evidence of Laura Robinson's? Failings as a journalist. Yeah, and it's not only that. I mean, there's other cases of other journalists in Canada coming out against her, uh, saying this is a vendetta. This is a uh, you know freelancers are just sort of rogue uh, Ronin with knives to sharpen and people to take down. And these claims by other journalists are being used by Furlong himself as proof that she's a bad journalist, which seems. Yes. I don't know. As a freelancer who works with larger institutions uh, like the Star, the Globe, or whatever from time to time, it is horrifying to think that other journalists would turn against someone for their own benefit or for no apparent benefit other than to say that Furlong is a nice guy or he didn't do that or freelancers are bad. Like, I don't understand the motivation of these people. It is appalling. And I, and I am I'm the last person to say that we all need to stand behind some sort of like thin black line of, of you're all on the same side. But we rely on freelancers and we rely on investigative reporters to put themselves out there. And when you publish a story, whether you're a freelancer or on staff, you get named if there's a libel case and your credibility is on the line. And so the question other journalists like, well, was the story valid? Did she do her job properly? And then you've got Chris Selly coming out and, you know, this, this statement about it being a vendetta. When Chris Selly in the National Post wrote, frankly, it smacks of a vendetta, he was parroting the same language that Furlong himself used. And that's one of the statements he's being sued for. What he said was uh, that she, you know, uh, he, he said uh, it feels like a personal vendetta. So that's one of the things that Laura Robinson is saying, excuse me, uh, you know, you're, you're like, what personal vendetta? She didn't know him before she started investigating him. And Chris Selly, when he wrote that, offers no evidence that there was anything between them. So, so what does Furlong tell the court through his lawyer to substantiate this idea that she's on a personal vendetta against him? Well, he points to the fact that she has a career of uh, being critical of male authority figures in sport and that she was critical – in her reporting on the Vancouver Olympics when he was the head of the Vancouver right, Olympics. Right, there should be equal men and women on the advisory boards or something like that. Right? Yeah, well, she was – I mean, this is her beat. I mean, there's, there's sort of two parts. Like, one of this is like saying if, if, if she has made it her beat to cover abuse of authority in sport, which is by and large by men because that who has a, that's who has authority in sport – is that evidence of a vendetta or is that just like, wow, God bless you for making that your beat? There's no shortage of abuse in sport. If some reporter wants to make it their life's work to chronicle that stuff, because no paper is going to give you a full-time job right. covering abuse in sport, that's not like 
it's so strange, and I think it's a very gendered thing. You couldn't say a man. You know, it would be very difficult. Like, it'd be very difficult for, like, Rob Ford to say, Kevin Donovan has this personal vendetta against me, you know, uh, and he hates male authority figures because that's his job, right. right? She was critical of the Vancouver Olympics, and he said on the stand something to the effect of, you know, when you criticize the Olympics, you criticize me. You're criticizing me. Right. That's and, what the Olympics are all about, right? The uh, sole power of one individual. This is what we celebrate when we all come together for the Olympics. That is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Like saying that criticizing an organization can be entered as proof that you have a personal vendetta against the person who runs that organization. Because we we criticize institutions and organizations for our job. Right. Right. So like that's an assault on our profession. This would be like as someone who writes about movies a lot. If I gave uh, a bunch of one or two star reviews to a spate of summer movies and then Paramount Pictures came to me and said, you have a personal vendetta against Paramount Pictures. You don't like any movies. Well, not of even movies. Paramount Pictures, but like you've got a personal vendetta against the president. president of Paramount Pictures. This is the crazy bitch defense. That's why I think it's a totally gendered thing. You couldn't say it about a man, but like people can kind of buy into this idea of like, yeah, she's got issues with male authority figures. Well, they call her an activist as sort of a slur. They're like, oh, well, she's an activist. Yeah, and then she's got to like prove that she's not an activist or, you know, it's it's ludicrous that like the idea that an investigator uh, shouldn't have their own opinions or thoughts about what should be in the world. Right. Um, and then, you know, we heard there, you know, in, in, in the clip pack earlier that part of his idea that she's launched this, this whole campaign against him is that she went to every institution that he is affiliated with, that Furlong is affiliated with, and asked questions about the allegations. Called reporting, I think. That's called reporting, and that actually is evidence of her diligence. Right. (laughs) As a journalist. So how can you say simultaneously that she didn't do her diligence, she didn't do her job, while she went and actually asked everybody in your life, like, what can you say about these allegations? Like, she's being very, very thorough there. Finally, the one where it seems like she just has him dead to rights, he, she claims, accused her of claiming to extort him uh, to make the story go away. Let's listen to the clip. It's hard to hear this. This is his way back when, 2012, his first public statement about the story that ran in the Georgia Strait. This is what he said. Having experienced this reporter on many occasions in the past, this feels very much like a personal vendetta. And finally, let me just say, on the very first occasion that this was brought to my attention, Prior to the Olympic Games, I was advised that for a payment, it could be made to go away. As such, I reported the matter to the police. I've experienced this reporter many times in the past. This feels very much like a personal vendetta. The first time this was brought to my attention, I was told that money could make it go away. There was no question in my head when I heard that, that he's talking about Laura Robbins. He's talking about the same person in Mm -hmm. both of those sentences. His defense is that when he says, I was told I can make a away for money, I wasn't talking about Laura Robinson. I was talking about somebody else. Right. Without changing pronouns or anything like that. Yeah. In this, like, litany of uh, – and there's stuff that came before it as well about Laura Robinson, Laura Robinson. And then the first time this was brought to my attention, I was told that money could make it go away. So he's going to try to convince the court that he's – that he, he no, it never occurred to me that I was talking about Laura Robinson. Now – like, you know, her, her attorney has to do a couple of things, you know, one of which is to say, well, any reasonable person who heard that would think you were talking about her. So whatever your intention, it had the effect of libeling and defaming her. Right. And, and any editor thinking about working with her after that, well, you've been accused of like this guy went up there and he's a distinguished, you know, established guy who the Order of Canada. And he's saying that you blackmailed him. And in fact, a reporter accosted him once, a, a reporter questioned him once and said – 
did Laura Robinson. Like, like other people got that idea. It's not just me who thought it was talking about Laura Robinson. Right. I think everybody. It's a natural conclusion you would draw. It's just what anybody would think. It's, it's what he meant, I believe. For everybody. For everybody to think. The problem is even though his attorney, uh, her, her, Laura, Laura Robinson's attorney, is going to be able to prove that that had a negative effect on her, that had the effect of libeling and defaming her, they also need to prove that there was malice involved, that he set out to right. draw people And he to could that say, conclusion. I misspoke or, oh, I, I was I was under incredible pressure that day, whatever, whatever. And, you know, I was, I was thinking about different things and I'd just been accused of all this stuff and I, I, I should have said somebody else, you know. Right. But that wasn't my – I wasn't malicious. And he – might get off of all of these charges. And, I, and people need to think about that because the, the self-defense argument that he's making, which is like, look, I was being accused of some of the worst things you can be accused of. I have a right to defend myself. And that's the context in which I said all these things. Bill Cosby just got off based on that. It's the exact same pattern where there are people from decades ago accusing him. And those cases are never going to go to court, be it statute of limitations or just like how difficult it would be to prove something that happened so long ago. Similarly to how the actual original allegations against Furlong are never, you know, they're never going to see their day in court. But in defending themselves, Furlong and Cosby, against their accusers, they slag off the, the, the accusers, right? And in Furlong's case, it was Laura Robinson. In Cosby's case, he brought into question the credibility and the histories of these women. So there they had an opportunity. That was their legal recourse. They took Cosby to court for defamation and the court dismissed it all saying he's got a right to defend himself. Right. He also had this thing, Cosby at least, where he said he didn't want to dignify the charges uh, by yeah. responding Well, to yeah, he, he, he was very coy and said, I don't want to dignify it with the response, but, but consider the source. And he said a bunch of little cutting things. It's what you do. You, you blame the messenger. You blame your accuser. You blame, you know, uh, possibly the victim. You make it sound as if people can't talk about it or else they'd be dignifying it. I know what I believe about this. It's very uh, clear to anybody listening what my opinion of, of what actually happened is. But I don't know for a fact that John Furlong abused anybody. What I know for a fact is that John Furlong misrepresented when he came to Canada in his biography. Okay, make it a brisker read was his defense, right? right? First saying that, uh, well, it was an uneventful time. And later on the stand just this week saying, oh, actually, I met my first wife there. It was a wonderful time. And there are eight signed affidavits that make it sound not so uneventful. Yeah. So we know that he misrepresented that. We know that Gary Mason of The Globe and Mail – uh, who co-wrote that biography memoir or whatever with him. He never even told Gary Mason about those years earlier when he was in Canada. So, you know, from Laura Robinson's perspective, was this a story she should pursue? A, you've got this like very public figure misrepresenting himself. And then you find out that there are 30 people accusing him directly of abuse and over 40 people who either, you know, witnessed the total, it or, either yeah. it happened to them, they say, or they witnessed it. In what planet is that not a newsworthy story? All she was reporting is that these allegations have been made and the inconsistencies in his public record. Like it is a news story by any measure and her right to report that I I have no – I am absolutely 100 percent in the tank with Laura Robinson on on that. And these tactics being used to discredit her appall me. And I asked Rob Rob, um, Mickelberg. Of the globe, do they not appall you? And he says, well, lots of things have been said in this trial by both sides. So just as a statement of fact here, Mickelberg wrote a piece in 2010 calling John Furlong, before all this happened, before anyone knew about this, uh, Mickelberg called John Furlong uh, Canada's nation builder of 2010 and wrote this incredible piece about the, the great John Furlong. Gary Mason, the co-author of, uh, of Furlong's biography memoir, uh, is the Globe and Mail's Gary Mason. Right. The Globe and Mail, in their coverage of this trial, 
had a reporter in the courtroom every day except the day that John Furlong was being cross-examined. And I know Sonny Dillon of the Globe and Mail had been working very hard, needed a day off. Globe and Mail has other reporters. Okay? They, they ran a wire story that day. So going through the way the media has decided to handle this, be it Chris Selly or Brian Hutchison in the National Post who said this was a questionable story that other reporters would have walked past without reporting, be it the Toronto Star not running it, be it the Globe and Mail not even having anyone there when Furlong is being cross-examined. This is one of our own. And I maybe I'm falling into the trap here, John, of like making this about Robinson versus Furlong because what is getting forgotten in all of this, in the headlines about Furlong's wife, it's Furlong, it's Robinson, it's a, it's a question about a journalist, it's freedom of speech. What's getting forgotten about forgotten in all of this is there are 30 people. Well, this is the thing to me that really annoys me is that when people are talking about uh, how Robinson is an incredible journalist, it all, in my mind at least, trickles down to this idea that her sources aren't reliable, the presumption being because they're native Canadian people. Uh, There's always this sort of undertone to this whole thing that nobody really talks about. I think you actually brought it up on Canada Land uh, where you accused— In an article this week. Yeah. Say it. That's what my argument in that piece and what I'll say now is that's fine. If your my opinion is that it's very hard to get 30 people to lie about something like that with no benefit to themselves. with no benefit yeah. to them. None of them got paid anything by Laura Robinson or by the Georgia Strait. So I know what I think happened. But if you think that those 30 people all conspired with Laura Robinson, this crazy feminist activist, then you got to say that. You can't just say it's Laura Robinson. You got to say, I think, all, which is what Furlong said on the stand. And that wasn't the headline. Robinson's lawyer said to Furlong, so all 30 of them are lying? And he said, yeah, they are. So that's your headline. And I don't see that headline right. anywhere. All 30 of these native Canadians are lying about being beaten and abused by John Furlong. And they've named their names and the articles never name their names. No. And they never name their names in court as if like, I don't know. The other thing that annoys me is don't say that it's not a big deal because your hockey coach was mean to you when you were a kid. Like, Chris Sully, I couldn't believe... Oh, wait, was that Chris... I think it... I don't want to say because it might not no, have no, been. Chris Sully said it's not a big deal. Chris Sully actually left room for like, yeah, I don't I don't really doubt that like maybe there were beatings at this school. I was in a private school. I got yelled at really badly. I mean, that is a facepalm of some epic... So, you know what? I'm, I am on my soapbox. I'll do this. I did this last week on, on, on Shortcuts. Soapbox, soapbox. And I need to because after Gameshi, oh, this is a watershed moment. Everything's changed. We believe women. I believe women. If they're white, right? Yeah, and with all we the don't... residential school stuff just coming out, and now, like, two weeks later, everyone's kind of hedging around this thing where it's like, oh. Truth and reconciliation. And now look at look at our papers today because it's John Furlong. Like, Chris Selly's uh, getting hit at school or whatever isn't part of a systemic getting form of institutionalized yelled, abuse. Yeah, at his private school. <laughs> but he was yelled at really severely. Uh, everything has changed. John, nothing has changed. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all. I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter at Jesse Brown. John Semley, where can people find you? Uh, on Twitter also at John Semley 3000 The website is canadalandshow.com. The crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Katie Jensen. The next episode of Canada Land will be up on Monday. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday. If you like this show, please support it. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.